1: Welcome to episode 561 with my guest Mika. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is a mental illness happy hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads for medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. I'm a clown. <laughs> How's that for a way of getting people to scatter before the podcast even even gets going. Uh, the website for the show is MetalPod.com. MetalPod, also the social media handles you can uh, follow us at. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Rocket Ship in a Box. And about her depression, she writes, Can I sleep for a week before I sleep for a week? About her anxiety, the world is moving too fast and too slow at the same time. About having Tourette's, she writes, I want to scream. I feel trapped in this broken body. Thank you for sharing that. I can't imagine what that, what that is like. Dopamine deficient, uh, who identifies as non-binary, writes about uh, experiencing racial and cultural bias. Would you stare at me like this if I was a white person walking through your neighborhood? And about autism, I didn't get the manual, but no one will acknowledge that there even is one. Wow. Thank you for that. We've done a couple episodes on uh, autism, or at least people who are on the spectrum, so... Uh, If you're ever interested in a topic and wondering if there are episodes on it, just Google keywords that you're looking for and include the word metal pod. And if uh, they're out there, generally those episodes will show up on your search. Hope gives us a snapshot from her life and living with an abuser. Trying to love or collaborate with a malignant narcissist is like putting your head into a vice and asking for peace. Oh man, oh, oh, narcissists. It's amazing to me how, how narcissists can draw people into their web and how you can even know that they're making it all about them but there's still something so compelling about them. I suppose that's a testament to how good they are at uh, manipulation. Uh, This is filled out by a guy who calls himself Sigh, as in S-I-G-H. And about an addiction, he writes, Drinking so much caffeine I get bruises. Holy shit, I didn't know that was a thing. Knowing I need to stop, but I go blank when I try. Uh, About sex addiction, masturbating to cope with life. I'm glad you shared that because... To me, that is such an important distinction between masturbation as a healthy outlet uh, of our sexuality and using it as a blunt tool to deal with life, to avoid life. And, um, you know, when we're using it to run and to mask our feelings, um, to me, that, that's when I know something, something deeper is, is going on something i want to avoid or not feel but thank you for sharing that Uh, this is from the love survey filled out by (laughs) a person who calls himself if your dog doesn't think you're the most annoying person in the world are you even their owner i don't get that one i've never gotten the sense that uh, my dog thinks i'm annoying unless they're just keeping it to themselves They write, I love when my dog doesn't immediately notice I'm home from work and I have a split second to set my things down and take off my shoes before she sees me and goes apeshit with excitement and wants to play with me with every single toy she owns all at the same time. When my dog is watching me prepare her usual bowl of kibble and I look over at her and she has gallons of drool spewing out of the corners of her mouth like I'm serving her up a five-course meal straight out of God's own kitchen. The sheer joy my dog gets chasing me when I randomly burst into a full sprint on our neighborhood walk. I love that my dog doesn't really like other people just as much as I don't. I love when puppies get confused at their own hiccups and they try to chomp at them. (laughs) That is fantastic. I don't think I've ever seen that. I love when you finally have a night off of work and you can watch the sunset. And it feels like the sunset is lingering around way longer just for you. I love eating a diabetes, I I, I imagine that means a huge amount of sugar, amount of watermelon on a hot afternoon. I love the moments when I can look at my face in the mirror and not immediately think of how ugly I am and how I wished I'd look different, but instead see glimpses of my sisters in me because I think my three sisters are beautiful. Oh, that is a sweet one. I love that I don't have to step foot inside my previous jobs again that were so toxic and miserable and that I never have to talk to those shitty bosses ever again. Even previous jobs from 15 years ago still bring me joy that I don't work there anymore. Thank you for those. Arbitrary Mary shares uh, some struggles in a sentence. Uh, Dissociation. On Monday, hey, it's good to see you. How are you? On Tuesday, who the fuck are you and how do you know me? And about, uh, I suppose this one would be poverty. Uh, I'm too poor to afford real help, but too privileged for anyone to notice I desperately need it. Thank you for those. There's uh, Laverne Cox has a podcast and uh, a friend of mine, Mary O'Hara, who's a great author, and she writes about um, health care systems and poverty. And she was a guest on Laverne's podcast, Talking About Poverty Shame. Uh, you should definitely, definitely check it out. This is from the uh, Memorable Vacation Arguments survey, and this is filled out by Mrs. Beeblebrox. And she writes, I was in my early 20s and ecstatic that the much older man I was sort of dating asked me to take a weekend road trip with him. Turned out to be extremely boring, though, as I was accompanying him to a motorcycle swap meet where he was selling motorcycle parts. Boring and not romantic or sexy. And somehow this involved us taking my car. And then it was time to turn around and go home, maybe a five or six hour drive. He didn't like my driving. I held the steering wheel wrong. I drove too close to semis. Then I didn't take the exit that he only told me about at the last second because I didn't have time to check if it was clear to change lanes and he was mad that I didn't just take his word for it and switch switch lanes anyway. So we missed the exit, resulting in a long tirade about how you could couldn't always just take the exit and next that exit and turn around, though it turned out that in this case you could. After a while, we decided to stop and get some food. By this point, he was driving. We pulled into a truck stop and parked. I opened the door and dropped my shoes onto the ground to step into them as I got out of the car. I don't even recall a little bit what happened next. But someone said something, and it turned into a fight. We were both tired and frustrated and bored. We were so sick of each other that we decided to skip the food and just drive straight home. We arrived at his house, and when I went to get out of the car, I realized that in the heat of the moment, back in Pennsylvania, at that truck stop, I'd neglected to pick my shoes up and put them back in the car. I ended up having to drive back to my house barefoot, minus one of my favorite pairs of shoes. And I've always remembered that fight with a metal image of a pair of beat-up shoes randomly dropped in the middle of a truck stop parking lot, knowing that, Whoever witnessed the shoes after I left could only wonder about the personal distress that resulted in the unexplained presence of those shoes, waiting in vain for the feet that belonged to them to step back into them and keep walking. Wow. Wow. That that was so poetic, so beautifully, beautifully written. Thank you for that. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and uh, this was asked by Betty. She writes, have you ever had one of your interview requests rejected by a potential guest? If so, did you take it personally? Oh my God, I've been rejected dozens and dozens of times. And yes, I take each and every one personally to some degree, some more than others. We are sponsored today, as always, by BetterHelp Online Counseling. If you have never tried online counseling, why would you not give it a shot? Why would you not do it from the comfort of your own home or car or wherever, wherever you're at? Maybe in the middle of a crowded delicatessen. Maybe in the middle of your order in the middle of a crowded delicatessen. Uh, they have tons of experienced therapists you can choose from. And uh, I highly recommend it. So if you're interested, go to betterhelp.com mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so that they know you came from this podcast. And then just uh, fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor that they feel is a good fit for you, they will pair you up with one. And you can get 10% off your first month of counseling. And you need to be over 18 This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. And then finally, this is from the Struggle in the Sentence survey filled out by Uninvited from the Girls' Night and about her depression. She writes, it feels like I'm constantly grieving the loss of someone I can no longer remember. About her love addiction, it feels like just one person is always shielding me from the void and they're getting ready to step aside. About her codependency, whenever I'm in a codependent relationship, it feels like the old single version of me is locked away somewhere deep inside my chest screaming and no one can hear her. And about being a sex crime victim, It feels like I'm struggling to breathe life back into the pile of body parts I was reduced to. I am here with Mika, who I've met twice. Uh, we met years ago when the podcast was pretty early on, and I was speaking at uh, UC Berkeley, and you were a student there. No, not a student, but you were attending. You were attending it. And uh, and then we bumped into each other at a local support group, and uh, you shared a little bit of your story with me, and I was like, well... Let's, let's get this on the mic. Mm.
0: Thanks for coming in. I'm so happy to be here. It's, I thought I was too excited, but then after meeting your dog, <laughs> maybe, she, maybe she, somebody she, is more excited than I am.
1: She is just crazy about uh, <laughs> yeah. visitors. It's uh, Yeah, she is definitely a people person. Mm.
0: Yeah. So
1: where do we begin with your story?
0: Uh, depends, uh, where you want to start. I are, know. You, are you
1: comfortable sharing your age?
0: Yeah, I, um, I will be 31 October 4th, so okay. just a few weeks from now.
1: Well, happy birthday in advance.
0: Thank you, Paul. Um,
1: you, you had a pretty traumatic upbringing. Um,
0: yeah, only child, um, My parents uh, were in a very domestic violence-like relationship um, for 14 years before I was born. And then after I was, I think my mom kind of came to her senses and was like, it's one thing for me to tolerate this abuse. It's another thing to bring a child into it. So she took me at about age three, and we lived in a domestic violence shelter together. And then her mental illness really exacerbated, and she just could not parent so she kind of rescinded parental duties to my father who you know to his credit worked really hard and always had a roof over my head and fed me but really emotionally immature um total rageaholic um i just lived my life kind of catering to his emotions trying to calm him down when i needed to um and then a lot of overt sexual um sexual abuse stuff you know the comments about my body um probably the most explicit being like we had a game if you will like after i would take a shower he would sit on the couch and there was a hallway with a doorway that you know i could walk between and you could see someone through the doorway and he thought it was funny for me to like streak back and forth while he like watched me um and then he had no qualms about like coming into the bathroom when i was taking a shower so just like never had a lock on my door so just no sense of privacy um a lot of arrested development for that reason I was a really depressed kid um
1: i'm so sorry that you had to experience all of that mm-hmm. and um i mean that's so so clearly sexual abuse um it's it's it never ceases to boggle my mind the ways the creative ways that parents will get off on invading their children's privacy abusing their access to their bodies you know finding like as you use the word games um what was like that what was that like mentally for you as a as a kid what do you remember thinking or feeling for instance when he would play the game or he would come into the bathroom when you were taking a shower
0: oh man i used to cuz we had one of those doors in the shower where it was it was technically a window but it's like kind of mirror or uh, marbled so that when the shower's going, it fogs up so you can't really see through, but you could still see, like, you know, flesh color or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would, like, hunker down while he was, like, in the bathroom until he was done with the water running, just, like, waiting for him to be done. Um, but as far as, like, what it felt to be with him, I guess it's just I don't look anything like my dad. He's tall, Caucasian, blonde hair, blue eyes, and I really look more like my mom's side. Um, my mother's Puerto Rican, and so even, you know, as young as age 12, when we went out um, to a restaurant or something, people would kind of assume that I was like, maybe his little escort or something like that. So it's just, I'd never felt a paternal like bond with him. It was very much like I replaced my mom as his little spouse. Um, and, uh, he was always high, uh, smoked a lot of weed. That's a big part of my story. Just I feel like there was always marijuana, like coming out of the woodworks, growing up here in California. Um, and in a way, I think that actually was helpful with him because of the rageaholic mm-hmm. stuff. But you know, he was just checked out, completely unaware of how his behavior affected anyone and everyone. And for yeah. that reason, he didn't really have friends. I was, I didn't have a pet. I was just so isolated. I spent so much time like by myself in front of a mirror and making faces, or um, we lived in the fog belt of San Francisco and it was always freezing cold. (laughs) And I would just like stand by the heater for hours. Um, And then I know, Paul, you wanted me to uh, get into like sex and love addiction, which is, you know, where we got reacquainted in the support group. And I think masturbation was definitely something early on that released endorphins that I kind of got addicted to. so that's i think where that started <laughs> yeah
1: and how how old were you when that started and was it was it before or after your dad started crossing the boundaries
0: it's hard to tell when and where my father would have crossed boundaries um i know that my mom attempted a custody battle when i was really young and she accused him of certain things but she also is an incest survivor of pretty intense incest which has and the fact that she's never dealt with that has kind of made her unable to acknowledge my own abuse. <laughs> she mm-hmm. always is kind of like has the attitude, well, I experienced this, so you kind right. of have nothing to complain about.
1: Uh, it's such an awful, <laughs> awful thing that, that parents who are survivors sadly do so frequently. It's like they don't want to open their door, so I'm going to keep your door closed.
0: Mm-hmm. And she fed into it. Like my mom definitely just kind of the message she gave me was like work your sexuality like objectify yourself if your dad wants like my father would travel with me once a year that was like he would save his money he lived a pretty frugal life but he always wanted to travel somewhere and we would go to Mexico uh, the Virgin Islands a lot and he's just a galoof and like would be high or drunk and like kind of get himself into trouble maybe try to like People would want to kick him out of a bar or something, and he would use me as this, like, pass. Like, this is my little Puerto Rican. And I don't know. It what was, does that it feel? It was like? all weird. I just, I was never a, a real person. I don't think I even knew what my own voice sounded like until I was an adult. Yeah. I was so used to, I mean, you're a, in the perform, I'm a performer, you know, like, I just would mold myself to whatever adult was around for my own survival. So,
1: almost like an accoutrement to to that person, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, with narcissistic parents, they're so blind to the fact that they see their child as something that they squeeze the emotions from, the feelings mm-hmm. from that they want to feel. Whether it's, you know, today I want to feel like a good parent, so I'm going to act this way, or You know, I'm really angry. I'm going to take it out on them or, you know, whatever whatever it is. And I don't think they ever really stop to imagine what it's like to be in that kid's shoes or think about the fact that that kid might want something different than what that person Mm. values. So... Give me some snapshots from, you've, you've given me a couple, but um, give me some more if you, can, if you can think of any from childhood that you think are kind of emblematic of your experience.
0: So I've done like the whole therapy intake where you need to tell your story like too many times. And one story I always come back to, I don't know why, but it just, it stands out to me maybe because I had this like realization when it happened, you know, I was nine years old. And my mom and I were walking by the opera house in San Francisco, and somebody was selling tickets discounted on the steps uh, for $20. And the show had already started, so I think it was the second half of the show that we would have been able to go into. And my mom has lived in dire poverty um, my whole life, off the government, uh, lying and saying she was my full-time caregiver, although she was not, (laughs) Um, But I would see her roughly on the weekends until I started puberty. So at this time, she was like, oh, look, the opera, we should go. And I'm like, okay, mom. And we go. And maybe she didn't like the show or something. Mm -hmm. And we came out and she just was like, why didn't you talk me out of going? Like, you know, I don't have much money. Like, why didn't you say something? And I just was, I remember thinking to myself, like, how am I supposed to know what your like financial goals are? Like I'm just a kid here. Like I, I was just stunned, you know. So that's that's one that stands out for mom.
1: What What do you remember <laughs> thinking or feeling about your parents' emotions and your role in influencing or even attempting to control?
0: Um, I. I found a lot of control and manipulation eventually, like as I got older and realized how sick they were, and I felt like I was the only sane one, uh if not the adult, mm-hmm. <laughs> in so many ways in the relationship um my mom like she thinks she has a guardian angel, not that there's anything wrong with that, that like talks to her that she refers to for all her questions and I'm actually the one who like said I saw this angel. I remember like being really young, like six, seven, and saying its name was Airborne. And ever since she's like, Oh yeah, I have a garden angel named Airborne. And I'm like, I know that when I was like six, I put that idea in your head. So okay. Um and with my dad i mean i would just you know with the road rage he would follow people if they cut him off and stuff and i'd have to be like it's okay it's okay it's not worth it or you know he'd say the f word uh fag i say that i'm queer but you would just say something like that and i'd be like hey you know i don't know just talk him down and try to be the mature one um <laughs> yeah All all kinds of stuff. (laughs) Uh, It'll come up. I
1: I forgot to mention, uh, and I might have referred to you as she. If so, I apologize, but you identify as non-binary.
0: That's correct. I don't think you did. Okay. Um, I do identify as non-binary, and having grown up with a really sick man, a cis man, my just ideas on my own gender have... I've always been really complicated. I performed a certain kind of femininity for my survival, not only with my father, but then, you know, eventually with other perpetrators. Um, And then the masculinity that I had modeled for me by my father was, you know, just anger and machismo. And uh, I remember bonding with my father at an early age. He would point out, attractive women in the room or wherever we were and be like hey check her out wow and you just like stare and i kind of was like okay i guess this is what we're doing and i would kind of join in with my dad doing that and that's still a kind of behavior that i struggle with today
1: how so and and, and you will in your mind stare too long at a person a woman that you find attractive or men as well yeah
0: yeah definitely or objectify them Yeah.
1: In what ways do you find yourself past or present objectifying?
0: What ways? I mean all the ways. (laughs)
1: Just inside your brain, in your actions? Are they aware of it?
0: Um all of the above. Um, you know, I try to stay physically active and being like a petite, really femme presenting person, you know, I've I long held in my active addiction and sex and love um kind of thought oh well i can get away with this because of the way that i look and i had somebody point out to me just a few years ago before i found any recovery like hey like that's not cool like Mm -hmm. just because you're not don't look like x y and z doesn't mean you can get away with this and i was kind of like wow you're right
1: (laughs) so you weren't even aware of it
0: i wasn't even aware that it was like bad i just kind of justified it um
1: like what kind of behavior
0: yeah. Staring at people. Um, and, you know, because of the way that I look, there are certain things I don't have access to that other maybe I think male, cis male bodied sex addicts might have um, such as like massage parlors. And I know that's something that you mentioned in your story. So mm-hmm. I've been like straight out kicked out of massage parlors. Massage parlors that have the happy ending, that whole thing. Like, because they're like, uh-uh, you don't belong here. Um,
1: you asked for a happy ending?
0: No, but, I mean, I was with friends who were, like, also sex, and they were like, oh, we should, like, go in there and check it out. And they're like, okay, like, they can, the guys can come in, but she needs to go. And I was kind of like, oh, okay. So.
1: And what was your reason? Just to hang out with them, to be a part of it? Or were you looking for something?
0: I was looking for something I'll take a hit (laughs) um so one I found some ways to go around that um I've had Brazilian waxes for years as a dancer I had to do that as a teenager to do samba dancing I wore a song and danced in carnival in San Francisco and I learned that that was a way that I could have a attractive young woman like uh, be close to my genitals and apply hot wax and I thought that was really and I got off on like the secrecy that I thought I had in that interaction I'm like oh I'm just you know and they would ask you usually oh you have a boyfriend and mm-hmm. I'm like mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I
1: apologize if this is too graphic of a question mm-hmm. but would your arousal be something that was visible to them?
0: I don't know. I I didn't think so at the time, right. but I think I even took a picture once <laughs> of the waxer, uh, of the wax specialist while they were, like, doing their thing, um, you know, and was kind of sharing that and bragging to friends. So, I mean, I, I push boundaries. I've been... Uh, almost caught masturbating at workplaces um...
1: like at at your desk or mm-hmm. yeah,
0: oh yeah,
1: uh, thank you for sharing those those things, and you know one of the things that I relate to, and I have had so much shame about it my whole life, is sexualizing non sexual situations, and it never so. occurred to me until I realized that 's what my mom. <laughs> did to me you know taking my temperature rectally until i was eight Mm -hmm. and i think kids take that in on some level and i'm sure as you know the human brain will take our trauma and sexualize it i don't know whether it's to soothe us or take the fear out of it but we're left with this thing that gets us high in its wake that we don't want Mm. but you know, t- talk about that. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, you know, talk about the pursuit of the adrenaline rush. The what? What is it that you look for when you're pushing people's boundaries or you're sexualizing a non-sexual situation?
0: Mm. Um, well, I think it would be different from my adult and then... Sexualizing thing as, as a kid because it was just what I knew that's that was the standard in the household um so yeah, I completely identify with the characteristics of sex and love addiction. We sexualize sex, guilt, loneliness, anger, shame, shame, fear, fear and anger, yeah, yeah, all of that hundred percent any kind of emotional trigger, I would sexualize um. So your question was, what, what are you look-
1: are you seeking when when you you know I heard somebody once describe it as you know looking for oblivion, mm. you know a place that ironically you're fully present mm. in the moment, but it's against your moral compass. You know, which is one of the things about addiction that so feels so shameful is that you're not acting in a way that you believe people should, should act. And yet here you are trying to fill some void in your chest or release some drug into your brain that takes you to a place where you forget about your fear of the future Mm. or the shame of the past or whatever it is. Do you relate to that?
0: Yeah, I, I have sexualized, I think, out of fear of abandonment more than anything else. And I thought that that was my only worth, um, was to be sexually appealing to someone. And going back to being non-binary that um, and being like just queer identified, whether it's my sexuality or my gender, that meant playing whatever role, whether I'm being a bottom or a top, you know, servicing... Um, so I just would do anything to please someone sexually and I thought that was the only way that, you know, would keep somebody around and ironically I've lost a lot of people in my life I think because of that. You know, either I sexualized relationships that could have been great friendships or um once the sex was gone the people were like, "Okay, this is um, obviously a toxic relationship without the sex. Like, why am I still around?" Um. Hmm. What? I, I guess I'm still kind of lost. What is? What do I look for? Um. And definitely dissociation. I mean, I've smoked weed for the majority of my life, and I think it helped uh, in a weird way as a kid to dissociate from, like, an actively traumatic situation. But I still grasp for it, even though it really doesn't help me now. Um, It just kind of exacerbates most of my depression and anxiety. But I still reach for it because it's what I know. And sex and love and intrigue and fantasy are all kind of the same. Like, I just i find my that's my first impulse to sexualize any situation uh to go lo- get lost into fantasy about somebody I don't know
1: mm-hmm. oh my god I've experienced that like in line for coffee and um you know I, not not really since uh my girlfriend and I had been together, but you know the years were I was married and 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 I was lonely and there was a large distance between my wife and I, and I would be behind a woman in line at coffee. And I just liked the way her hair was put up into a bun. And I would just look at her neck and think, oh my God, what would it be like to just, you know, have that neck in my life to be able to kiss it and (laughs) smell perfume on it. And I would assign all of these magical qualities to her that she saw me and validated me. And then the catastrophizing part of my brain would imagine us in an argument. And then all the vivid details of having to break up with someone, mm-hmm. all in five minutes <laughs> right. behind someone, insanity. sometimes whose face I haven't even seen, mm-hmm. just because I liked the way her hair was up.
0: Yep. Yeah, and then I'm I'm sure for you, being in the body that you are and how you move through the world being perceived, you know, as a man, like, you're probably more self-conscious about those reactions that I'm just telling you as your friend and as a fan, like, I I think the same way. I've had the same thoughts, you know, and unfortunately I thought I could get away with them just because I, too, am objectified mm-hmm. often. But, you know, I mean, I remember going to, like, packed concerts in situations where you're so packed like sardines, there was like a woman in front of me and her butt is like pressed up against me. And I'm like, I'm not paying attention to the concert. I'm just like, she, I'm imagining she feels so safe. Oh my gosh, thank God you're not one of these like Mm -hmm. creeps around here, like taking advantage. You know, I feel safe. And it's it's like, I I was being a perp.
1: (laughs) When, if ever... I imagine you have to have because you've been in recovery for a while. But who was the first person that you revealed this inner life to outside of therapy? Was your therapist the first person?
0: Um, Probably not um, because I had so much shame around that stuff. Um, And I think in active sex and love addiction – I took pride in my ability to live double lives and to keep all my stories straight. Um, I had a beard, uh, a four-year relationship with a man, and I would act out sexually in queer kink BDSM clubs at night. And Um, he didn't know? He had no idea. No. Um, And I think the men that I used to date, I did so because, you know, they remind me of my father, they were tall white guys and I associated that with power and privilege and, um, desirability. It seemed like all of the the women and femmes that I was attracted to would inevitably end up marrying a guy like that. And, um, I came out pretty early on as maybe bisexual first. Um, you know, I started the gay straight Alliance as it was called in my Mm. high school. Um, But once I started having gay sex, I encountered time and again partners saying, okay, that was fun, but I'm still experimenting. And then they would, you know, Mm -hmm. I'd soon find out that they were in a long-term relationship with some cis guy. So I just got to a point where I was like, okay, well, I guess that's what I have to do. And I did so. And then I continued to, you know, just live that double life um, and and ended up hurting a lot of people. Um,
1: What does that feel like? The knowledge of your past
0: that's sad, yeah, i I'm still just in awe that people have such positive relationships with exes because none of my exes talk to me. yeah, <laughs> not one. <laughs> They're like blocked delete by you toxic person. <laughs> yeah, it's just sad.:
1: Do you feel like you were not the person you were when they blocked you?
0: Um, I mean, I'm still me. Uh, (laughs) I still have, you know, troublesome thoughts, but uh, I know where they come from. I have compassion for myself and, you know, I don't feel as much shame and I have tools and people that I can reach out to. So I'm a more mature person, a more self-aware, a more accountable adult. Give
1: me uh, an example of... A moment or moments in recovery when you had the impulse to do what you've always done,
0: mm-hmm.
1: objectify or sexualize or push boundaries, but you reach for a different tool.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I really came close to acting out not that long ago, um, and I told my friend, and she said, here's the link to a Zoom meeting. Get on it right now. And I said okay. Um, and the lead share was my story, wow. and I was just floored. Um, and then I reached out to that person who did that lead share, and they gave me resources, including a uh, inner child meditation, mm-hmm. uh, like guided meditation. And I just I did that, and I sat with my discomfort. And I cried for my little me. Um,
1: Good for you. That is. Seems like such a simple thing on paper, but it is so hard. Mm -hmm. It's why one of the things I do is I have a picture around of myself at a really vulnerable age. You know, I I think it's a picture of myself in like second grade, and I see it almost every day, and it just Mm kind of reminds me. Yeah, that little kid's still in there, and you know it's important for me to understand how he feels and what he might think is a good idea, Um, and to and to be nicer to myself. Mm -hmm. Have you ever talked to a picture of yourself?
0: I think I have. Um, The memories are a little murky because it was probably at like times where I was premedicated pre-recovery and really suicidal. Um, But, you know, I'm still here today, so I think that that was a helpful exercise that I may have even heard of on your podcast.
1: (laughs) Talk about navigating the world as a non-binary person. Hmm. Especially for somebody, for for two sets of people. Mm -hmm. Somebody who is living a life similar to yours Mm -hmm. and feels confused, alone, marginalized. And for somebody who's never really thought about what it's like to be
0: Mm
1: -hmm. non-binary and navigating in a largely binary world. How's that for a long ass question?
0: (laughs) It is a long question. Uh, I think that it can be really exhausting um, because we live in a binary world and I often feel like it's my responsibility to educate people, to correct people. And it's so exhausting. It can be empowering. You stand up for yourself, feel heard, and then immediately I want to like act out or act in because I just feel like, uh, that was so vulnerable. That was so hard. Why do I have to do this? Um, And
1: by acting in, uh, I know what you're talking about, but share for the listener what acting in means.
0: Isolating, um, just negative, negative thinking, getting lost in that and wanting to just crawl into a hole in my bed and not leave. Um, You know, or just eating a bunch of bad food or whatever is going to make me feel physically... How I feel so emotionally, um, but being non-binary, mm, I come from it in a lot of ways. I mean, we live in a colonized world, in a colonized culture, and I think that most of identity politics we live, we deal with, especially in the West, are colonial impositions. And you know, being someone who has like some Taíno ancestry and stuff, like. I am aware in my heritage of non-binary, of two-spirit, of gender non-conforming spirits, role models, um, people who have been praised as healers. So that's a big part of uh, my claiming of that. But I also have never identified with the performance of Man or woman identities that have been projected onto me. I've always felt a bit of both and none at all. Um,
1: that must be a difficult place to operate from on any given day.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think. It's, it, especially as a femme presenting person, people make a lot of assumptions like, oh, well, if you want to be perceived as more like genderqueer, like, why don't you wear more masculine clothing or whatever? And for me, my gender role models are Prince and Bowie, you know, really flamboyant femme, uh, guys. I mean, Prince was very much like a heterosexual man and a ladies man at that. And so like, I'm like, why can't I be that? Why can't I be so high femme and like be a ladies man? And yet, that's not how I am perceived, which you know is one of the fears I wrote down for you like I think I fear I'll never be perceived as how I really feel. Um, I remember the first time I used a strap on on a sexual partner, and how like an out of body validating experience that was
1: and what do you mean by out of body?
0: I just felt like, oh it felt like an extension of myself. I didn't feel like I was, like, using a toy. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, That must have felt really good.
0: And then I leaned over to the uh, sexual partner afterwards and said some sentimental things and they were like uh too real <laughs> i think that she said like that's too real like very much like you're just a one night stand can you not <laughs> it's like, oh that must have hurt wah, wah. <laughs> that must have hurt <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> so. but uh what was i saying about like looking up to people like prince and bowie and like femme Femme presenting masculinity, um, you know, I'm five, two, and part of me, like, mm, realizing my gender identity was wanting to be taller, and I've always worn heels, (laughs) like, since, since I was in high school, because I wanted to be taller than, like, the girls I was attracted to, (laughs) um, but, you know, society doesn't read that logic. That doesn't come across. They're not like, oh, you're wearing heels because you you know, asserting some kind of masculinity. <laughs> like, um, it's a disconnect.
1: Let's talk about the exciting topic of suicide.
0: Yay! <laughs>
1: you shared with me before we started recording a moment when you were working the suicide hotline and you yourself were suicidal. Oh, Yeah. Uh, Let's rewind to the events that kind of got you in that headspace.
0: Yeah. um, And how long
1: ago was this?
0: I mean, I think that suicidality is something I struggle with and probably always will. But recovery, therapy, meds, your podcast, fellows, all these things like are reminders that it's just kind of an old thought pattern. Mm-hmm. And I think I know in my heart of hearts, it's not what I actually want. It's I just want the pain to end. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as what got me into it, that place uh, in the moment you're referring to, when I graduated college, so I went to college at age 17, I got a full scholarship to this Ritzy liberal arts college. And for me, it was like, okay, this is my ticket to freedom. I'm gonna get the fuck out of my toxic ass household. Which I did. And then it was like, oh, you have to do homework? I have to go to (laughs) class? Excuse me? (laughs) So that was kind of the start of a lot of sexual acting out um, through my college years and into my 20s. And then
1: would that be one night stands? Uh, what, What, if you're comfortable talking about, what did that look like? And I'm sorry if I'm asking too many questions about what you're acting out looked like but when i have a guest who is not male mm. um they can share a lot of the myth-busting things around non-male oh, yeah. sexuality Oh no
0: um, yeah. oh, i think that's really important and something we talked about um like in going to recovery just to fast forward to today like I had to stop going to like women identified meetings cuz I just kept hearing cis women say things like, you know, maybe a woman who's uh sexually anorexic uh saying like I don't want to have sex and like my husband doesn't understand because, you know, he's a guy. And I just remember thinking like what? So you're saying like only men can't understand <laughs> like Anyways, that kind of stuff, or, or like porn addiction only be att- being attributed to to men. Um, but for me, yeah, sexually acting out, uh, compulsive masturbation. I've always watched porn since finding it um, in my dad's closet at a really young age. Uh, I've been in relationship after relationship, um just hooking up with strangers, unsafe people, finding myself in, like, apartments on some, you know, 13-floor walk-up. And I think back, like, nobody knew where I was. I, I could have just disappeared, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I don't think, what do we, oh, the suicide. Yeah. <laughs> we got a little derailed. Yeah. So I felt suicidal especially at that time where I really found your podcast um, from reference of a friend and I was working at San Francisco suicide prevention I graduated college I did not know how to keep a job I might say that I still don't <laughs> um, and I had to move back home 23 years old I had to move back home with, with my toxic dad yep mm-hmm and because I didn't know how to break up with the that That relationship that I was in at the time despite having cheated on that person for years um, he ended up following me to my father's home and it was just a complete shit show and I was so mean to him and tried to break it off until he finally was like okay it's enough I moved cross country for you all this stuff you're done and then as soon as like I got that validation (laughs) I was like, wait, no, no, but you're I you're what loves me. Without you, then who who's gonna mm-hmm. love me? <laughs> and I just felt really lost. Um, and that was really the height of a real low. I mean, I got a picked up a really bad um eating disorder, my IBS was really bad, uh just living off of sugar. And I didn't see any hope for myself. I didn't know how to to love. So I felt like that was it. Mm -hmm. But I was working the graveyard shift and I would be alone in the office at times and just just listening to Mental Illness Happy Hour. So you
1: weren't answering phones?
0: Um, so I actually worked the, I was a staff member. Um, usually the crisis line, uh, people who are actively suicidal call volunteers who are in the call gotcha. center. But as a staff member, I was more a referral line for um, Medi-Cal services. Mm-hmm. So people would call seeking mental health services and I would kind of do the initial intake before they get that referral. I got
1: gotcha. you so you're in the fetal position Mm
0: -hmm. at work
1: (laughs) how did you get out of that brush with
0: yeah that's when i found because the eating disorder got so bad i was just binging myself into oblivion like i remember putting my hands into like a casserole of lasagna and just eating it like a monster you know and having a relative be like who did something to this lasagna Did a car like, hit the lasagna you know, like, like uh was it me so yeah that was just so bad i was in so much physical pain so i found a uh, 12-step support for for eating disorder and you know that was just kind of the beginning and of course my very first sponsor i completely sexualized huge crush on um but thanks to you, you know, you've said mm-hmm. very much it's not it's natural. Um.
1: Yeah. When, when we feel seen, it's if we didn't feel seen in childhood, it's electrifying, especially if it's the, the gender that we're attracted to. Um, I think people that don't fantasize about fucking their first therapist mm-hmm. are probably the exception. I could be wrong, but uh, I think moving through that and sharing that with a the therapist is really helpful and important because I think whatever is going on in therapy, if it's that you don't trust your therapist or you th- worry that they don't know what they're doing, I think sharing that with them, whatever it is, is really, really important.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that sponsor actually cut me off because I learned that they were facing a terminal illness and they were triggered by my suicidality. Mm. (laughs) And then that led me to uh, meet other people in program who came forward as incest survivors and they helped um, me get on meds because I don't know about you, but growing up in California, like all the hippie whippy stuff, like... Everyone I knew was like, oh, oh no, God, don't don't take antidepressants. Like, that's terrible, big pharma, just smoke weed. And I'm like, yeah, weed's, like, making me eat an entire cake and pint of ice cream a night. So I don't know (laughs) if that's going to solve it. So that's all what helped get me out of it. And then I started kind of my slow plan of, like, okay, how am I going to get the fuck out of this household? And it took a while, but I've been in L.A., I've been free... You know, I've had the most stable housing in my entire life. Um, I have a lock on my door for three years now, and that's just such a gift.
1: Was there a moment when you felt like, oh, I i think I can handle being alive and all that comes with it, and maybe even a sense of hope that that you might be able to manage mm. the demons or self hate, whatever, was gnawing at you,
0: hmm.
1: or was it just a gradual thing?
0: Being of service in any way um, makes me feel like I have purpose. That you know, all my pain is not in vain. That somehow, if you know, it touches anyone, that I can survive this, that they can too. Um, and I am currently. Applying to social work, uh, master's programs. That's awesome. So I think working with with young people, teens, um, really, really helped me because I felt like a hypocrite if I was so actively suicidal on the inside, and here I was working with kids and young people and saying hey don't kill yourself and then working in the suicide (laughs) prevention Mm -hmm. line right and being like hey it's okay it gets better but i didn't believe it myself and then it slowly but surely yeah yeah
1: you want to do some fears and loves okay you brought you brought your book
0: i brought some i didn't actually write that many um
1: i don't have any prepared so
0: (laughs) but one that comes to mind uh that relates to sex and love addiction, I remember a few years ago I was with a group of people, and they were all saying goodbye and someone looked at me and said, "Oh, I would give you a hug too, but you don't look like a hugger and i I was so hurt by that. I was like, "What does that mean? You know because I long for a hug, and at the same time, I really do have this irrational fear that maybe it was coming across to this person." That if I hug someone, either because I'm attracted to them or I just because of anxious attachment, I won't be able to let go and they're going to have to <laughs> pry me off. <laughs> so that's a fear. Um, I'm afraid that – do you want to alternate?
1: Yeah, I'll, try, okay. to, I'll okay. try to think of one. <laughs> and this one comes up almost every time I have a non-male guest who talks about um, – sexual acting out or addictive behavior, uh I am so afraid that I'm coming across as creepy. It it's it's such a strong uh feeling. It's it's Yeah.
0: Where do you where do you think that comes from?
1: I think the shame of my sexuality my entire life, feeling like I was a pervert, mm-hmm, feeling like mm-hmm because there were times that i acted like a pervert you know and i sexualized people and places and things and um uh, and i i regret that and i feel shame about that um but i know that i'm not that yeah right guy
0: you know to believe all your thoughts what yeah. a revelation right <laughs> Um, I am afraid that I'll never be financially um, sustained on my own, um, and I'll soon be too old to depend on my looks to get men to support me.
1: That was another thing that you had mentioned uh, when we bumped into each other, was um, kind of a relationship that you had had, had where... It felt kind of like a sugar daddy kind of thing. Don't let me put words in your mouth.
0: Um, I think I was referring not to a relationship. It was very, well, in retrospect, it was not a relationship. Uh, I moved to L.A., fleeing my toxic home. I had just the final straw with my father. And I had a friend who was going away on her honeymoon. She said I could crash on her couch, packed my bags, just kind of fled in the night And quickly, you know, didn't really know anybody besides that friend, didn't have a job. So I got on the apps and I started going on dates to have my meals paid for. And, you know, slept with somebody the first night we met and then became just like in lust with each other.
1: And did you genuinely feel lust towards that person or was it out of uh, survival?
0: I I did. That person, I felt, you know... uh, they're my quote unquote qualifier mm-hmm. for the program and in fact i think they they used to live around here so if i had come here maybe 2 years ago it would have been really triggering uh but yeah like that relationship if you will i remember even the first time like this person dropped me off at my house and they're like okay you can go home now and i was just like what we're not going to hook up like how what if? it does not compute <laughs> uh but, you know, I kept going back to that relationship. After eight months, this person, like, was from another country and would go back for months on end. And then I got to a point where I was like, wait a minute. If you're going to go away for another, like, four months or something at a time, like, I, there needs to be something here, like, sustaining us. Like, do you love me? And mm-hmm. he was like, uh, no. And I felt immediately suicidal again. I had no worth. I felt so rejected. And that's when I found... Sex and love addiction recovery groups, uh, and I blocked that person. And uh, believe it or not, <laughs> that person looks a lot like my dad—a <laughs> lot like my dad. <laughs> um. oh.
1: And, and yeah. so, would you put that under the the header of transact transactional sex, or any of the the stuff from your history? would you put as transactional? I suppose, you know, going on dates to get your meal paid and hooking up if you don't find the person attractive, I suppose that's transactional on some level.
0: Yeah. Uh, More explicitly transactional was when I was a minor. Uh, I know I shared with you two of my major perpetrators I met around age 12, one of which was a music teacher so I joined his band and he facilitated a lot of um, opportunities for me as an artist. And um, I think what also factored into my suicidality that we were talking about earlier, you know, listening to your podcast was that was around the time that I finally decided to call that person out. Um, and I haven't sang professionally ever since then, by the way. is mm. um, I just, it's just too triggering for me. Um, the other one was somebody who, ugh, And I've had therapists be like, if you give me a first and last name, like, I could press charges kind of a thing. But I think that he lives in in Mexico now. Um, This guy, he was a bike mechanic.
1: She's using air quotes.
0: (laughs) Whatever. Mm -hmm. He was really a trust fund kid in his 40s who just, like, I don't know, was seeking out. He had, like, a really specific fetish. I kid you not. He liked queer females. So I always had short hair. This is the longest my hair has ever been, which is another credit to my recovery and self-love. Um,
1: and how old were you at the time?
0: I was 12 when I met him. And then he became like official sugar daddy.
1: Gotcha.
0: Um, he took me on trips. He would take me to really fancy dinners and stuff. And, uh, and what
1: was his fetish?
0: So he liked queer presenting females, kind of tomboyish. A uh, petite and half Latino, Latinx, and half Scandinavian. What the- So I went on a trip with him <laughs> when I was, like, 19 with him and, like, two of his other sugar babies, one of which was Peruvian and Norwegian, I'm Puerto Rican and Danish, and the other one was, like, Costa Rican and Norwegian. <laughs> it was so weird. <laughs> but, yeah, like, he gave me a lot of money throughout the years, but... Um, it's, it's hard to talk because I could even recall instances where he was around maybe somebody younger than me and I could already see him trying to make the moves and start the grooming process. Um, but, yeah, that, that whole relationship or dynamic, dynamic with that guy um, really solidified my association with sex and survival self-worth um, mm-hmm. i mean he helped pay for my my schooling um so i felt like i didn't have a right to speak out to how fucked up the dynamic was um yeah
1: some heavy shit mm. that is some heavy shit
0: uh another fear. Okay. I think I already mentioned this, but, you know, as a non-binary person, I fear I'll never be perceived as my authentic self. Um, even if I were to take tea or have top surgery, um, there just isn't, nothing's going to make me a foot taller or have mm-hmm. a working penis. So.
1: I, Gracie has been burping lately, and I'm afraid that she has stomach cancer. Oh,
0: Gracie. Yeah.
1: It's been very good during the interview, very quiet.
0: R.I.P. Herbert.
1: Herbert's butthole says Herbert's hello.
0: Butthole. <laughs> I'm going to cry. Um, I fear that I will encounter a final straw or final trigger and finally succeed in carrying out my suicidal fantasies. I'm sure that's pretty common.
1: Yeah, I think it is. I think uh, those of us who flirt with suicidal ide- idea
0: idea ideation? <laughs> ideation
1: um are afraid that we're gonna have a bad moment mm-hmm. and we're gonna put all our chips in because yeah. we it's so convincing because
0: mm-hmm.
1: you feel it in your bones that it, it life is really just unbearably hard but doesn't last Mm
0: -hmm.
1: forever that's the that's the part that is so hard to remember when you're when you're in that place
0: i don't know why that made me think of (laughs) so i like to share with you examples of bad therapy (laughs) and i had a therapist in high school and i shared with her that um you know the song Ooh, child, things are going to get Love that easier. Song. And I remember listening to that and just crying and being so, like, I don't know, immersed in the sadness. And it just yeah. like, and I remember that therapist crying when I shared that with her.
1: And to you, that was a bad thing.
0: Well it's like, well then I'm comforting you and I was a kid. I was still a kid. <laughs> what
1: the heck? I suppose it depends on the way in which she cries. Because I've had a tear roll down a therapist's right, right. face no, before I where I felt seen.
0: Right, right. No, I know what you mean. No, I think in this regard it was more like her being like privileged and probably like an interning new therapist, you know, assigned to a public high school and was just kinda like, What? <laughs> right. Um I... This is a good one. I fear that I will have a uh, sex and love addict relapse, act out again, and accidentally get impregnated during a one-night stand or drug-induced fling.
1: I, I'm trying to find ones that don't have anything to do with cancer. <laughs> <Oy>. <laughs> hmm. Uh I am afraid that anything that I have invested in or will invest in will go to shit. And I will die impoverished. Hmm.
0: I don't know. What do you think, listeners? Do you agree with Paul? I don't think so. We got you, boo. Uh hmm, let's see. Uh, I fear that my codependency will lead me to get complacent and stay in a relationship that does not meet my needs.
1: I am afraid that the tremors in my left hand uh, mean that my best guitar playing days are over.
0: Uh, I think it was Paul who talks about Django Reinhardt Reinhardt. all the time. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm.
1: A guy that played with two fingers. <laughs> hmm.
0: I, I think that's it for now. You want to do loves?
1: Yeah, let's do loves.
0: Um, I love when I found the perfect outfit and I can wear it and feel confident that I indeed look good.
1: Oh, that's awesome. For myself, not yes. in a... All right. yeah. I love when I'm walking through the house and my digital picture frame uh, shows an awesome photo of Herbert, and uh, and I talked to him. And I feel love and not just a sense of loss, but a sense of, yeah, our spirits had 14 great years together, 13 great years together, and he was a great dog, and I was a good owner.
0: hmm Oh, my gosh. So grateful for pets. Um, I love when I you think of someone you care about and soon after they reach out to you.
1: So awesome. It's so awesome. I love when somebody close to me or even somebody I know navigates their way through something seemingly overwhelming and insurmountable and it just comes out the other side and you're just reminded that life is not just a gigantic shit show heading downhill.
0: <laughs> <laughs> hmm Hmm. This one might be like a film nerd thing which you might relate to um i love when i can accurately detect the voice of an actor in something obscure like a cartoon or documentary that you at least oh, expect gosh. that person to be a part of oh
1: yeah me too <laughs> and i love that i feel like it's a talent that i you know and i'll be the annoying person who yeah, will say oh that's so and so
0: me too 100 yeah. percent um I love when you really do not want to wake up for like an appointment or something. You check your phone after alarm sounds and the appointment um, notif- notification says that the appointment has conveniently been canceled and you can go back to sleep.
1: The best, <laughs> the best. I think that's the first time we've gotten that one in the, and the loves. Uh, yeah. I remember one time I invited about, I don't know, about 10 people over for a get together. And at the last minute, they all bailed, and I was so hurt and so relieved. (laughs) (laughs) I remember thinking, wow, you are a complicated motherfucker. (laughs)
0: 100% agree. Uh, Okay, so I'm a dancer, and I love that when in dance class, I can have those moments where I'm actually not thinking at all. Mm. (laughs) And my body just takes over and I move through a routine it's priceless
1: what kind of uh, dance is your favorite
0: mm, favorites hard but uh, I recently started doing flamenco again which I did as a as a adolescent oh. during like uh, actively being abused and I stopped for 10 years I think because it really reminded me of that time and uh been doing it again for like two years now
1: that's awesome uh, flamenco music is so, uh, it, it's just the clapping mm-hmm. is so complicated. Yeah. And Poly- to do the steps, do you just practice killing mice?
0: <laughs> no. I think the goal is just to not think. Like I said, you can't, yeah. all the polyrhythmic. You're literally making music with your feet. Yeah.
1: So. Have you seen uh, the documentary Camarone?
0: uh that's been recommended to me before but no it's really good it's
1: really good yeah
0: uh uh this might be kind of creepy (laughs) but i really don't mean it to be um so part of like as a kid i didn't want to be home and i would just walk the streets of san francisco like aimlessly until my legs literally would give out and by doing that i kind of fell in love with looking into nice old houses like around dusk and just appreciating the way that people decorated their homes like
1: um, that's sweet that's yeah. not creepy oh at i don't because i like
0: looking into somebody's house no, but it wasn't because i'm like oh i'm spying on like a yeah, person I was just no, like, it's oh, a, it's a little nice.
1: dickensian <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah if anything it's a little heartbreaking but i think i think we all kind of feel that way sometimes when you get to just get a glimpse of another life or another group of lives, and you just wonder what's going on there? Is it good? Is it bad? Are there secrets? Mm. You know, are those, are those, do, do they love each other and do they show it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, anymore. <sighs> I love Freddie King, the blues great, late blues great uh freddie king i love the tone of his guitar mm. and uh, just the way the way he s- sang and the the way that he would uh phrase his his guitar licks
0: yeah nice i love blues I love killing um, a mosquito that woke me in the night and like leaving behind an ink blot of my blood on the wall, (laughs) just keeping it there as like vindicating my violent act. (laughs)
1: Now that's creepy. (laughs) You misplaced your creepy fears or or love. Yeah.
0: That's the goth in me coming out. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. This is such a stupid, simple one, but I love when I remember to put the garbage cans out. (laughs) in the last month, twice, I've forgotten to put them out. And uh, I just uh, hate that feeling of like, oh, you fucking idiot. How difficult is that to do? How hard is that to remember? It happens the same morning every week.
0: I think as you've said on the podcast before, as a depressive, like sometimes... The fact that we get the laundry done during the day, it's like, that's great. Go you. So I I think that's great.
1: Sometimes just coming home after getting groceries feels like I made it out of a burning building. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, my God. Turn the car off. That last thing gets put away in the fridge, and it's just like a feeling like I could collapse. Like a marathon runner has just crossed the finish line, and... It's kind of so ridiculous, but I know there are people that feel the same way.
0: Oh, yeah. It can be so exhausting to leave the house when I'm like in a real depressive mode. Um, Well, I don't want to take you too long, but I I might end with, um, as somebody who's... Taking care of babies and kids for a long time. I love feeling the weight of a baby sleeping on my chest and the peace of letting go of all of the worries, but to maintain that infant's comfort.
1: Mm. That's a sweet one. Yeah. I love seeing parents pay attention and really see their kid, really tune into what does that kid like and seeing that kid clearly feeling seen and safe
0: Mm, that's the kind of stuff that makes me cry like when I hear uh, parents especially like maybe parents of adult children um, in in programs share like using their kids uh, preferred pronouns like Mm -hmm. I've been brought to tears like to see someone like in their 60s 70s be like you know, use gender-neutral pronouns to refer to their kid. It's like so amazing because yeah. my parents would never do that. <laughs>
1: and I think it can be difficult for people who are even supportive. Uh, you know, I screw up sometimes and I feel like, oh, my God, you know, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. the worst. And I know that's not the case, but I'm so afraid of hurting people's feelings or making them feel, you know, not seen. But um I think it's it's harder for some of us folks who are a little older and mm-hmm. our brains don't absorb new information quite as quickly.
0: Sure. And that's why the fact that you are making that effort and continue to learn and that, you know, it speaks volumes. So thank you, Paul. Yeah.
1: Well, that's a nice note to uh yeah. to end on Mika. I, I'm really glad our paths crossed again and uh congrats on all the the stuff that you have navigated and are navigating and uh being so open on and honest and vulnerable uh about about all this stuff. It's it's really valuable and and moving. So thank you. Thank you. Mm. Love talking to them. Really enjoy that conversation.
0: Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by
1: ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces Plus they offer flexible financing Accept eligible insurance And you can pay with your HSA FSA Get 80% off your impression kit When you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Let's dive into some surveys. Let's not fuck around. Let's get into it, huh? Let's roll the sleeves up and get into some fucked up. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey uh, and Rocket Ship in a Box. says, you spend so much time reading about and hearing so much negative stuff. How do you cope when you have your own issues? Do you struggle with it off podcast? I wouldn't say struggle with it, but I just have to pay attention to um, whether or not I'm, I'm getting burned out. I think I've answered that before. From that survey. Apolo- Apologies if I'm uh, repeating myself. But, you know, there's also, while I can be heavy hearing people's stuff, there's also, you know, as long as my battery isn't drained, there's a connection and a sense of meaning and purpose there that can actually be kind of invigorating and life-affirming. This is from the struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself Silent Bunny. And about his ADD, he writes, Focusing feels like running my mind over a cheese grater. About his alcoholism, just smother me. I don't want to know me. Wow, that is such a good one. That is such a great distillation. And and really so observant that, you know, not being in recovery that you understand that deep underneath that is a fear of of self-knowledge, among other things. But I don't know, maybe you are in recovery. About compulsive eating, if the trash can is full, there isn't room for me, the most disgusting garbage of all. Wow, that is harsh. I'm going to say you take baby steps and you start referring to yourself as refuse. And then you bump it up to recycling? About uh, his autism, when daily life feels like a Trader Joe's parking lot. Oh, for those of you that don't have a Trader Joe's, that is how they keep things cheap, is their parking lots are postage stamps. About the pandemic, learning that I was already living a lifestyle that could be called quarantine. Snapshot from his life. Having to avoid the light afternoon office party because the noise will spin me into a three-day depression that I'll struggle to explain. Thank you for those. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a a guy who calls himself Monty C. He uh, identifies as bisexual. He's in his 20s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, according to him. Was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Two separate occasions, both when I was about six to eight. It's hard for me to remember entirely. I just remember I was asked by an older adult man to see and touch my penis and a relative also asked to suck my dick and I let him. I don't think I've ever, ever once told anybody. I don't think I've ever once told anyone that. I mostly try to forget and I don't ever bring it up. I feel like it was wrong, but I deserved it because I didn't say no. Which is worse because I know I was just a kid and couldn't have known any better, but it just fucks with me. Oh, man, and that is so sadly common, that instinct to to blame ourselves. Um, He has been uh, emotionally abused by both his mom and an ex. Uh, Any positive experiences with the abusers? Uh, My mom is fantastic now, and our relationship is less screaming, yelling, and fighting, and she supports me and makes me feel better about myself. I honestly can say she hasn't been passive-aggressive or telling me I'm ungrateful and lazy or I don't love her or I should just leave since I don't care about anyone. I'm actually best friends with a relative that sexually abused me. I more or less don't let it bother me anymore. He wasn't much older than I was, but it was still fucked, and I have no clue if he remembers. We never talk about it. It does complicate feelings towards both of them. I love them both, but I get the feeling they don't actually care about me, so I can't actually open up to them like I can with a very select few people. I'm glad you... you. You mentioned that about not feeling safe opening up to, to some people because, you know, that that can be a really healthy instinct. And, you know, there's there's such a fine line between just keeping shit trapped inside us and not opening up to anyone and, you know, spilling it all in front of people that don't act in a way that's empathetic or understanding I hope that makes sense if it doesn't go fuck yourself and I mean a light go fuck yourself a lot of times I, I'll say go fuck yourself on here and that's it's deep you know I'm, I'm casting you to the bowels of hell and encouraging you to go fuck yourself whether or not the devil wants to watch you that's up to him does that turn him on I don't know we're we're gonna go with a light go fuck yourself I'd almost call it a dainty go fuck yourself which means when you're fucking yourself I want a pinky out straight out like you're a Brit drinking tea darkest thoughts I have a weird rape fantasy I would fucking never though and I think about murdering people darkest secrets I feel like everyone hates me, so I try to get everyone to like me. I act completely sane and happy for other people because a lot of people lean on me for emotional support and advice for their issues, but I don't really have anyone to talk to, and I just want to tell most of them to fuck right off. Oh, brothers from another mother. But I know how it is It is to be depressed and suicidal, so I don't. It probably isn't the worst thing you have read, but it's something. Yeah, don't minimize that. You know, the 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 plight of the helper ignoring what's going on inside them is so common and I very much very much relate to that. Especially if we don't even know what's going on with us. If we feel numb or can't put into words cuz so, so many times it's just a fog, just an uncomfortable fog. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I have a furry fetish thing and rape fantasies. Uh, What, if anything, do you wish for? For my father to pay attention to his kids again. Have you shared these things with others? Nope. Most I will share is I have anxiety and depression, and I have trust issues galore. How do you feel after writing these things down? I'm physically shaking and feel upset, but better, question mark, I don't know anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences it gets easier but don't let it hold you down too much thank you for that i mean that's the power of you know that that physical response he's having that you know that speaks to the to the power of putting our experience into into words or our feelings into words no matter how hard or scary it is This is from the love survey filled out by Bette, and they write, I love hearing my partner's breath and the beating of his heart when I lay my head on his chest. I love how he twirls his toes when he's watching TV. I love the way he coddles our dog, formerly just my dog. I love that every time he tells me he loves me, I know he means it. I love that when I'm done typing this, I'm going to look over at him, and he'll look back at me and smile. That's so sweet. Thank you for that. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Ezra, who identifies as non-binary, and they describe their anxiety like I'm on a roller coaster forever frozen in time just as it drops. Oh, that is such a good one. It is such a good one. Thank you, Ezra. This is from the Shame in Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, Yasmin. She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, She writes, my father raped me and my cousin molested me. She's been physically abused and emotionally abused. Uh, She writes, In my culture, physical abuse is often used as a form of discipline, so that was quite common. I would probably not consider it abuse had it not been for the combination of physical and sexual abuse present. My mother is like an emotional abuse fairy godmother. Whenever I catch myself smiling for no reason, she's right around the corner to drag me down to the pit of hell she birthed me into any positive experiences with abusers. My father and I were estranged from each other, so I don't really have any memories uh, except the abuse. My cousin and I were close, but it doesn't complicate my feelings about what happened. If anything, it overshadows any good moments we ever had. Darkest thoughts. After my dad abused me, I became obsessed with incest pornography, and I sometimes still fantasize about the idea and the, that's got little asterisks by it, of consensual incest when having sex with my boyfriend. Darkest Secrets. Once, when my half-sister was an infant and I was about 11 or 12, I humped her lower leg slash lower body until I came. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you, father-daughter, mother-son. It makes me really uncomfortable to share that and more so to know that it is something I find stimulating. You are so not alone in that, and I hope you can let go of that shame, because as long as you're exploring your fantasy in a way that doesn't hurt anybody, more power to you, more power to you. Have you shared these things with others? No, I don't think I could live with someone else seeing me in that light. It can be really, really empowering and validating to be able to share your fantasies with somebody. and Boy, can that create a a foundation of trust and and intimacy. Feeling fully seen and accepted is such an amazing feeling. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel kind of gross and kind of (laughs) relieved. Oh, what a great phrase. Kind of gross and kind of relieved. Thank you so much for that. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by The Drunk Next Door and about her alcoholism. She writes, Alcoholism has made me an excellent planner. The level of strategic thinking and planning I employ to maintain a steady supply of booze is actually kind of impressive. Snapshot from her life, uh, She went cold turkey, and she writes, I had to sit down in the middle of the kitchen floor with my head between my legs in order to prevent myself from vomiting everywhere. That's when I finally realized I needed a drink and that cold turkey is the worst way to quit drinking. That can be for for some people. People can die from alcohol withdrawal, Um, and the same for people withdrawing from uh, benzos. So yeah, it might be good to look into detox. This is from The Struggle in a Sentence. This is filled out by a gender-fluid person who refers to themselves as Janet Jackson. And they write um, a snapshot from their life. My numerical OCD compulsions usually don't make their way into my life in a way that physically harms me. It's usually just mentally and emotionally harmful. But sometimes I have to brush each, quote, section of my teeth 33 times even if it hurts and if the 33rd time isn't quote right or i accidentally do 34 then the next stop is 99 and before i know it my gums are bleeding the whole time i feel like i'm trapped inside my own body just asking to be let off of a stupid ride wow wow thank you for sharing that You might be—you might be the only person that goes to the dentist, and the de- dentist tells you you're you're brushing too much. I had a dentist one time told me you need to floss every day. <laughs> I said to her, "Look, we know that's not going to happen. So give it to me straight. What can I get away with?" She goes every other day. This is uh, from the Struggle in a Sentence, filled out by a woman who calls herself, How am I still here? And about her depression, she writes, Like I should be taken care of by a wartime nurse. Oh, that is such a good one. There is nothing better than an empathetic nurse. I've had a shitload of operations in my life, like 13 operations, and... The difference it makes when somebody is there and you feel like you're a human being that is important is just such an amazing feeling. About her OCD, I believe it all. I sleep on the floor now because everything else, bed, couch, chairs, have proved to be unlucky. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence Survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Too Many Donuts about his sex addiction. He writes, I want to see everyone naked. I don't feel like that is wrong. I don't think that's, that's wrong. I think that's pretty human. I think to what degree it fucks with you is something to be looked at and because that's where processing stuff that we bury or don't want to deal with um, can, can help with that. I know that in in processing the shit that happened to me as a kid, that kind of obsessive thinking definitely lessened. About his codependency, my fiancé might die without me. Any ideas to make the podcast better? Uh, I suggest we talk more about how to self-help when our significant other is reluctant. How do I get her help? when she wants nothing but to die and the hospital, crisis line, friends, family, me, dog, nothing seems to help. The only thing I found beneficial is to let her fend on her own. She'll get out of bed if she truly is hungry. Get help for yourself. You know, you cannot change somebody else. You cannot make them want help. You can offer to help them find help. And the great thing about getting help for ourselves if we're in a difficult relationship is it can give us a fresh perspective on that relationship. And that can help us make a decision as to whether we want to stay or we want to leave. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Ray She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. She was a victim of rape in college. and She writes, I remember freezing, staring at the white wall and brown sheets. At the time, I felt dirty, used, and at fault. Now, two years later, I feel hatred. I haven't been the same. I am defensive and trust no one, and it started with that one horrible encounter. She's never been physically abused, but she's been emotionally abused. She writes, my boyfriend of four months, who had been my best friend for four months prior, began becoming emotionally abusive. He would yell at me when I didn't understand why he was upset. He made everything seem like it was my fault and I couldn't do anything right. One time, he grabbed onto my arms while he was yelling, and I completely froze. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Of course. My best relationship was with my emotional abuser. He was the best part of my life that turned into a nightmare. Darkest thoughts. I have thought about suicide and death a lot. I have thought about doing many stupid things, like what it would be like to rob a bank or the likes. Darkest secrets. I am a bisexual woman with PTSD, depression, anxiety, and ADHD. I've coped using alcohol, sex, drugs, Netflix, working out, eating my feelings, eating extremely healthy, and more, all to try to control my life that has always felt like it was spinning. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Bondage and being overpowered. Writing that makes me feel terrified. As someone who has been sexually assaulted, I wouldn't want anyone to control my body. I guess I would want to be with someone I know I can completely trust not to hurt or betray me and my body. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? And this is in caps. I am suffering. Please listen to me, not ignore me. I need your support because I have no one else left to turn towards. Please don't give up on me. I am not ready to give up on me or life. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish that everyone's suffering can find peace and happiness. Have you shared these things with others? No! I don't know anyone that would understand. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel vulnerable, but a little more relaxed, knowing that someone out there in the world will have heard me. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experience? It always feels like the end like you are trapped alone in a hole it isn't the way it isn't the way out it isn't easier straightforward but there is a way up you are not done yet your story has not been told and i love you wow that's so beautiful and man you went deep i really appreciate that and i'm so sorry for the things you've experienced and the things you are struggling with and i really i hope you find your tribe because you deserve to feel seen and validated and we we all do we all do it can be such an amazing experience when we get to feel that connection and love and speaking of loves This is our last survey, and this is from the Love Survey, filled out by Night Ash. And they write, I love the way the sun feels on my face on a cool spring day. I love a full fridge. Oh, that is such a great one. I love the feeling right after you put the last bit of the groceries away. It's such a great feeling. Staying up all night, talking to someone you love about anything that pops into your head. The crunch of fall leaves under your feet. Fall, everything about fall. Warm, heavy blankets in a cold room. Stretching achy muscles after a workout. When my old cat, with no teeth, gets overly excited and tries to bite me with her gummy mouth. (laughs) The look of respect from other fighters when you pull off a difficult move against them or prove yourself in a fight. And lying on a partner's chest, falling asleep to his heartbeat under your ear. Wow, those are awesome. Thank you for those. Thank you everybody for your surveys. They're just I've been doing this show for ten years and they just still fascinate me, move me, and I'm and I'm so appreciative that you, you take the time to go fill those out. And if you're out there and you're struggling I say it every week and I mean it every time I say it. You are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in I know some weird way. Bizarrely
0: beautifully Everybody fucked up in some, weird, bizarrely way. Beautifully fucked up in some weird way.